Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. On today's episode, a listener writes in and they ask a great question. What does the Bible say about the Antichrist? Well, the the word Antichrist evokes imagery of the end times, especially in Revelation. In Revelation, we learn about the end game of Satan along with his unholy trinity, the false teacher, the Antichrist, and Satan himself. In fact, John the Apostle in 1 John wants to help his readers understand that there isn't only an Antichrist in the future, but also an Antichrist now. So let's ask the question, what does the Bible say about the Antichrist? Well, the Antichrist John speaks of in 1 John 2-2 are those that deny Jesus is the Christ. These false teachers deny the Son and thus the Father because of the full identity of life and purpose shared by the Father and the Son. And so the shared life by the Father and the Son is a life manifested to the people of God in Christ, proclaimed to them in the gospel, and promised to all who believe in Christ alone. And since Jesus is the Christ, our eternal life is sure in him. In 2 John 7, John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. 1 John 4, 2-3 helps us understand that only those who confess the Son, Jesus, and the Incarnation are those who come from God. Those who do not confess Jesus is the Christ come in the Incarnation are Antichrist. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is a Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. In 1 John 2.18 we read, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. There's only four references to the word Antichrist in Scripture. I've just quoted every single one of them. The frequency of the references doesn't mean that it's insignificant, and nor does it mean that these antichrists will represent the diabolical antichrist in Revelation 13, 1-10, or the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2-3. From Serinthius in the 2nd century to Joseph Smith in the 19th century, and from the earliest Arians to Jehovah's Witnesses today, Christian face, Christians today face challenges to the deity of Jesus from all sides. So Christians should not be offended to see these significant religions under the Antichrist category or to say that the fight is with them. Our real spiritual battle is not with flesh and blood, and people are not opponents to be won. Instead, we preach the gospel faithfully from the word of God, and we make disciples of all the nations. And we also contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints by speaking the truth in love. So what are some of the characteristics of the Antichrist? Well, First John teaches that there will be those who fall away from the faith and they abandon orthodoxy. Such people are those who have made empty professions of faith and who never possess true and saving faith. These, those born of the Lord by the Holy Spirit will persevere. First John 
2.19 applies to all who deny the faith in the local church. It is the leaving of the false teachers, though, that prompts John's writing of 1 John 2.19. The false teachers were those antichrists that will come. And while we await the day of the final Antichrist today, we have lesser Antichrists who have come beforehand and who are here now. Those Antichrists are liars. They do not possess eternal life, uh, and are, we are to recognize when and where the spirit of the Antichrist occurs. First John 2.22 teaches Christians that, that the one who denies Jesus is, uh, Jesus is the Christ is a liar, and an Antichrist. And, and in view of this, in this denial of the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints, is not only a denial of Jesus the Messiah, but also of the Incarnation. The Incarnation is critical to biblical orthodoxy. It's an important way that Christians can be sure, assured of salvation. The false teachers uh, John is countering accepted the view of Serentheus, who called Jesus the Christ, but denied the apostolic definition of the title. And so instead of seeing Christ as the eternal Son of God who became incarnate, followers of Serentheus were convinced Jesus was a mere man his entire life, only possessing the spirit of the Christ. So how can we be aware of the Antichrist, or even of false prophets. Uh, John wrote 1 John toward the end of the first century to help his audience and God's people today to be assured of their salvation. False teachers had come into the church and tried to attempt to, uh, to persuade genuine Christians to abandon the faith. These teachers had caused some to doubt their faith, and so John aims to correct these teachers' errors by giving three tests to determine the authenticity of our faith. These tests are belief in the incarnation, holy living, and love. And if someone denies that Jesus is the Son of God become incarnate, they have the spirit of the Antichrist. Christians are those who walk in the light, not in darkness, which is not perfectionism. It means that they have hearts set on obedience to the gospel. Such Christians eagerly admit their sin when they learn of it, and they flee to Christ for forgiveness. Genuine Christians love God rather than the world, and love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. John in 1 John 2, 28-29 gives a mark of holiness of those who are born again. In fact, in John in 1 John 2, 28, John teaches for the second time in his letter that his readers and Christians today must abide in Christ. To abide or to remain in the Lord Jesus, uh, according to 1 John 2, 28, it refers to the practice of personal righteousness, to which 1 John 2.27 emphasizes the foundation of when it says that to abide in Christ is to believe apostolic doctrine. Biblical doctrine informs right living, and right living corroborates with biblical doctrine. The, the personal righteousness John is speaking of assures the people of God of their salvation because it reflects the character of God the Father. In 1 John 2.29, John uses him, a reference to God the Father. It is only those who practice righteousness who have been born of God. Just as children resemble their parents, so too will there be a resemblance between the Father and between his children in the Heavenly Father. And, and 1 John 2.28 helps readers understand Christians will not be ashamed at the second coming if they abide in Christ. Our efforts do not get us into heaven, but they do reflect we have been born of God. 
Now, they also give confidence to Christians, knowing they are in him and he in them. If, if you're not confident today of the final judgment, ask yourself, if you neglect the righteousness of God, and if so, repent, trust in the righteousness of Christ alone, and endeavor to walk in holiness just as God is holy. Now, Paul is also concerned, as, the, as is the Apostle John, about the spread of false teaching. Among the false teachers, uh, uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 17-18, are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Hymenaeus is probably the same man whom Paul condemned for blasphemy in 1 Timothy 1.20. No one knows precisely what Hymenaeus said, although his false teaching about the resurrection may connect to the Greek disdain for the body. And challenges to biblical teaching on the body and the resurrection were common in the early church. Error spread in opposite directions. One party said that bodily pleasures are dangerous so that believers should practice self-denial. Another party said that bodily pleasures are inconsequential so that believers can indulge themselves. And later Gnostic literature spiritualizes the resurrection, reducing it to the Enlightenment. And the idea that the resurrection already happened, as 2 Timothy 2.18 says, may represent an acute case of realized eschatology. That is, the view taught that believers already lived in full in the age to come. But we need to understand that apostasy causes absolute harm. The message of false teachers are bound up to upset the faithful. Paul insists in 2 Timothy 2.19, God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. False teaching may upset the church, even uh, cause division, but it cannot wreck its foundation with it when its foundation is built on the apostles and the prophets and ultimately upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Nothing can reverse God's saving acts. He protects his own until the day of salvation. Their salvation is certain for God has written their names in the book of life. It upsets believers when people such as Hymenaeus and Alexander swerve from the faith that they once proclaimed. Still, if anyone doubts his status, Paul reassures them by quoting Numbers 16.5. The Lord knows those who are his in 2 Timothy 2.19. In fact, Numbers 16 describes a rebellion of Korah. Korah gathered 250 leaders of Israel to accuse Moses and Aaron of usurping Israel's leadership. In Numbers, Moses asked God to judge between him and Korah, saying that the Lord will show or even make known those who are his. Paul follows here the Septuagint, which reads, the Lord knows who is his. See, God knows who does and does not belong to him. He knows who leads and who speaks truly. God calls Moses and Aaron. He did not know Korah, who soon perished. Similarly, the Lord also knows that Hymenaeus and his allies are self-appointed and false. And so God's people can stay calm. There's always false teachers, and, and God always unmasks them eventually. To Hymenaeus and his tribe, Paul commands in 2 Timothy 2.19, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That is, if they genuinely call on the Lord, they will forsake their rebellion, lest the Lord exclude them and shame them. And so the Lord promises to preserve his church despite threats caused by heretics. Korah did not destroy Israel, and no one can destroy the church. And furthermore, the Lord summons self-designated believers to forsake their ideas and conduct. 
And so Paul's invitation to depart from iniquity, it echoes Moses' exhortation to the Israelites to depart from Korah, lest they die with him when judgment comes. You see, Christians can trust that God's foundation stands. John 10, 14 says, I know my own, and my own know me. This knowledge includes the grace of preservation. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep, and he promises that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of their hand in John 10, 28-29. The Westminster Confession of Faith 17.1 states the point carefully. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. I want to thank you for listening or even watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.